Hello, everyone. I am That Weems Guy back for yet another episode. And joining us tonight is John Murphy for a return visit. How are you doing, John? William, I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me back. All right. Tell everybody who you are. I'm John Murphy of FPF Training. I'm a traveling uh, firearms instructor, can still carry self-defense. Uh, I live in an RV in a van down by the river. It ranges all across this great land of ours. Well, I almost called you earlier today because I got down that rabbit trail on YouTube on like camper van builds. And there was a guy that put a $6,000 incinerating toilet in his camper van build. That That's the high end. I'm afraid I've got the old stinky slinky and, and we pull up to the, to the dump station. That's how I take care of that. Uh, as soon as I did that, it would break and I wouldn't be able to fix it. No, well, yeah, oh, oh, absolutely. That, that's why uh, old school is the best school. All righty. And then joining us also are John and Sarah Haltman. How are you guys? Hey, Hello. how's it going? Is it wrong that whenever I see you, uh, you guys, I go, hey, it's the Filsters, and I don't think of the Haltmans as your last name? Yeah, that, I think that's pretty normal. Considering the number of people who think my name is Phil, that's water under the bridge. I, I'll take it. I think it's brand recognition. That's right. great. People may yeah. pay money for that. Can you hey, believe? it's you guys, the Kleenexes. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies first, Sarah, tell everybody who you are. I am Sarah Halpman, uh, one of the co-owners of Filster and uh, co-inventor of the Enigma. And I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Mr. Filster. Uh, I'm John Halpman. I've been running Filster for about 10 years. Um, and then I moved to Minnesota and met my lovely wife and everything has changed for the better since. Well, outstanding. All right. Miss Tessa. Hi, I'm Tessa Gabrielle and I have a YouTube channel and an Instagram called Armin Styled. And I also work as the director of customer development for the Filsters. <laughs> All, right. All right. Tell everybody about more about your YouTube channel. Uh, my YouTube channel kind of serves as a place where I share about my concealed carry journey. I talk about concealment. I talk about classes that I've taken, like John's class, um, and just kind of curate that content so that people can kind of learn alongside me. All right. And you give lots of things like fashion and accessories for how to dress with a firearm. Not yep. dress around a firearm, dress with a firearm. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. And I and I'm certain that the Filster Enigma comes up in a lot of your videos. It does. Yes, naturally so. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great chassis system for concealment, and it lets me dress armed and styled. <laughs> there you go. Uh, long before we met, I was actually sending your webpage to female clients that would ask me questions about, you know, dressing. <laughs> I dress like a hobo. I, I, I get paid to wear a gun. <laughs> you know, most of time i'm showing my gun i'm not trying to hide it so uh, I, I don't know here look at this page yeah. well i appreciate it that's a compliment i appreciate it that's right and we actually met at john murphy's class yeah all right john and sarah i think i met you guys at TatCon. we did we haven't seen you since this previous TatCon. we saw right. 2022 right right we met the first one in dallas and then we saw each other again this past year Yep, twice in Dallas so far. Right. That sounds and right, but I feel like I met you before that. Shot show. 
NRA maybe? Uh, no, I've never been to SHOT Show or NRA. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I know, like a sieve these days. I, I know, John, <laughs> that the first time we ever spoke was at the first TechCon in Dallas because that was, that was when the Enigma had just first come out and I asked you. Yeah, that was the first year we got um, invited to stop by and check it out and we caught the following year. Right. Yeah. Well, since we've mentioned it several times, if you would like to discuss the Enigma real quick, go ahead. I thought we were here to talk about Murph's class. Well, we will. We will. Okay. We will get to that. Well, I'm not trying Let's to like. talk about real innovation in this industry, not... and that's the Felster Enigma. I'm not, try... I'm not trying to hog John's no, no, spotlight. No, right. no, 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 no. So uh, I'll, I'll give you the whole elevator pitch. Some of the people who are listening to this have been around long enough to remember Runcible Works. Runcible Works was a small holster company, still is a small holster company, uh, run by a young gentleman named Jules, and especially women who had been to ECQC would know something about the products that he made. He made these completely custom by hand, worn under the clothing, belt with integrated hard holster shell systems, as opposed to something like a, a Thunderwear or a, or a Smart Carry, where it's just like a, a, a fabric kangaroo pouch that you put your gun in and wear it under your clothes. Real holster, belt built in, all this other stuff. And back in 2018, I had known him through holster making and through the scene. And I asked him, because because we had started to make a couple little changes here over at Filster where I wasn't just, you know, like uh, hunched over breathing in Kydex dust all day trying to get this done. I had kind of like made some moves and things were getting made other places and things were getting sold other places. And I'm like, cool, now we can do whatever we want. Let me get a hold of Jules and see if there's some way that we can talk about taking his idea and turning it into something that's like capable of being mass produced instead of him making like five of them a year for the people who could find him, right? And we started that project back when I lived in Philadelphia in 2018. And I moved to Minnesota for this lovely woman in, in, in 2019. And then we went through this process of designing this thing for about a year and a half until Sarah came into my office, picked up this scrap of material that we had been working with to make something else and said, hey, can I take this? And I said, absolutely. And she came back about a half hour later with this boomerang shaped piece of Tegris bolted to a holster and said, Hey, what do you think about this? And I took some pictures and I sent it to Jules and I said, Sarah just threw away a year and a half of R and D that we had been working on and completely obviated it all with this. And I sat down and I immediately started making some little design changes to this kind of like winged faceplate that fits on the front of just about any holster that anyone who's watching this podcast is going to own or is going to be interested in buying and that was the key to figuring out how we could make something that would fit just about any popular appendix carry holster on the market under your clothing that does more than just wearing a belt under your clothes and uh and now we're here and it's kind of like taken off in a way that we didn't expect on the 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 first batch that we ever made, we said, how many do you think we should make? Oh, man, we, well, we've never sold more than 250 of anything in a month. So we'll, we'll, 
we'll we'll make 250 of them and we'll sell them and every every order that comes in will be a name that we recognize from classes or TatCon or the industry and and you know we'll we'll sell through those in about a month and a half because it's the weirdest most complicated thing we've ever made and they were gone in 20 minutes and uh i'm getting the wrap it up sign so so <laughs> now we're here you should you should say these yeah. i know i, I know. was gonna say it in 10 seconds we oh. made a cool holster the end <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what people's frame of reference is, or how much they know, or how much they are un- unaware, or if they want to hear the story or not. There you go. Well, I would not have asked the question if I didn't want to hear the story. So hopefully everybody else would. But we will now go to the star of the show, and that is one, Mr. John Murphy. And we're going to talk about John's class. Now we've talked about it somewhat in his previous visit. Um, when was that? I should have looked. You know, I should have been like a professional show host and like looked that uh, up. So I can say it. December. Yeah, something like that. And for a long time, it was in the top three episodes. You've been kind of knocked That's out of that job. my life, right there. Yeah, but uh, maybe this one will catapult you right back to the top, John. Here we go. Let's do it. All right. So tell everybody about your class that we're going well, to bring tonight. My signature class is Street Encounter Skills and Tactics. It's a 24, 25-hour class that starts with a five-hour video YouTube view-ahead on a variety of topics that usually receive mention in classes, but no real further play. Uh, Criminal uh, pre-assault indicators, conflict communication, uh, definitions of speed. We all concentrate on that speed to that first first best shot, the, the physical speed, manifestation of speed. But the reality is for us as armed citizens, the real speed is speed of recognition and speed of mental processing. And we just saw a fine example of that this past week in Indiana in that mall. Everybody's obsessing on the 43-yard shot. Uh, and I, too, am interested in that. And I'm really interested to know who trained that young man. But what, what, what really appealed to me was his transition from Subway Sandwich with a girlfriend to a totally committed gunfight, which required the refined application of marksmanship principles under stress. And he pulled it off magnificently. And frankly, that's a lot of what the, my class involves in. Transitioning from a, a, a conversation uh, to conflict and then criminality, uh, the before, during, and after. The b- before bit is addressed in video and some, some classroom work. The during is largely on Sunday. And the, con- the consequences part, uh, stop the bleed and law enforcement interaction, I went in throughout the whole curriculum. So I'm, I'm really taking a, a holistic approach to the, uh, the problems that an uh, uh, armed citizen would face. Right. And yeah, I wanted to do another episode on on your class because I truly believe it is one of the, the finest traveling road shows that's out there on the market. And unfortunately for your bank account, you're just trying to sell people what they need, not what they want. No, and, and, and so, you know, it's chocolate covered asparagus. They're, 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 coming, they're coming my way, man. Another another 15, 20 years, I'm gonna own this space. 
Right. You know, long after you're gone, you will be appreciated for what you provided. That's a typical, typical for genius. Right. Geniuses are never recognized in their time. Not in their time. Um, you know, we've done a couple of episodes on uh, DB, Chuck, and Cecil's MPE counter-robbery class, and I have not seen it firsthand, but I know those three guys and know the, the, the type of stuff they put together. I've seen your class in its entirety twice, and I've seen bits and pieces of it numerous times. And I'm not blowing smoke, anything. I really do and truly believe for the audience, John's class is pretty well right there, the best bang for your buck that you can get as far as a true preparation for uh, what you are likely to experience should you find yourself in a violent encounter. And yeah, it's not as, as, you know, exciting as standing there and running drill after drill, trying to beat the best time that's ever been recorded on a particular drill. Um, because if I remember correctly, the only thing you actually time is we do, do some one shot draws from the holster just to get uh, a baseline. Yeah. Uh, I call that your first best shot. And uh, it's changed a bit since you last saw it in, in March or February. Uh, but that is, that is the first shot. And it's a, a the, the two, two part process. First is the, the decision to shoot based upon a particular stimulus. And that has to be a, obviously a threat to life and limb. Uh, and that has to hit something anatomically significant in a meaningful time frame. Uh, and, and when those criteria come together, then you get what we had in Indiana. Uh, when people when they fell apart, they maybe blow that first first best shot, and it's a miss. And then you then you go, well, the situation can devolve even further from there. All right. Now, Tessa, were, you you took that class here in Georgia. Yeah. All right. What were your general impressions of the class? Um, I put together a whole video on it and I actually just rewatched it before this. And I felt like it was the best class I've taken to date on kind of, like you said, the holistic approach to concealed carry. It felt like it covered just about everything that I would want to know. And I would want, um, like my family members to know that was something that I walked away from that class thinking was, I wish, I could get all of my, you know, all of my family members to take this class before they started carrying a gun. Huh? The Haltmans? I remember being timed in a particular drill about how quickly I could recognize a cue to stop shooting. And I think that was the one of, one of two times that we were timed in the class. I remember and, and doing that, that the first iteration, which I saw, but I don't remember us doing that this last time. That stood out to me as as a significant uh, learning point because you know a lot of a lot of it's not a shooting class; it's a class that's got shooting in it, right? Um, and a lot of shooting classes are like, great, we're going to figure out you know exactly what you need to max out your recoil control and your split times, get your dot back settled on the target as quickly as possible and man you're hitting like 1.4 split times which would yeah. mean that you fired two shots before you're capable of recognizing that something has occurred so like i watch uh 
F1 every weekend that it's on. And pretty frequently, they'll tell you what the driver reaction times were to the light going out to start the race. These guys who know that the light's going to change, who practice this endlessly to get this right, from the time that the light goes out to the time that their foot hits the gas, most of the time it's 0.25 to 0.3. And these are athletes who are dialed into this reaction time in a sport where hundredths of a second matter. And they've also pre-made the decision to go. Right. They're not, they're not processing input and deciding. And so we're out here shooting, focusing on certain kinds of times, but there's things that you can't measure. You can't measure the time before the beep, right? Which is what John talks about in terms of like recognition. Um, and it's very tricky to decide when to stop shooting and whether or not you're overshooting something, right? And it's not like, well, you know, have, have I shot this target too many times? Did, did, I, did every round really need to stop the threat? It's a matter of shooting at something that is no longer there by the time you've realized you need to stop shooting, the, pressing the trigger. Like in 0.2 seconds, a, a body can no longer, can wind up being not in your line of sight anymore. And if you're not tracking it that fast, those are two or three rounds that are just off into the mm-hmm. ether of backstop, whether or not that backstop is solid or fleshy. Or they go right over a falling person. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they continue. Sir? So I will never, I will never uh, poo-poo technical shooting classes because technical shooting is really important. And the reason it's important is not so that you can burn everything down with your amazing split times. It's so that you develop the automaticity to run your gun Mm -hmm. at a level that doesn't require all of your brain power. So that's awesome, and we should all be doing that. Um, But this class is the class that teaches you how to run your brain power. And that's what I think is really significant about it. And you want to talk innovation. I think, uh, I really think that John Murphy is pushing this industry forward with the ways he is breaking down and making these things repeatable and teachable. Uh, and, and it's really pretty cool to watch. I, I think he's really he's really making a huge mark on this training industry. And it's going to be really interesting to see the ripple effects from that. Yeah, I think some people have a misconception that it's like a beginner's class because it addresses so many things that are. It's It's easy to take John's class and say, man, this should be the class that everyone takes immediately after that they get their carry permit or immediately after they decide to carry a gun. And it is. And and it absolutely is. And it's kind of like a chef's tasting menu of everything that's further down the rabbit hole. Like we get into stuff like, you know, managing unknown contacts and you can start taking classes from dudes like Craig Douglas, but that's a rough first class to take, right? Um it's kind of the it's kind of like if you took a little bit of everything from TACCON and tossed it into like a sample platter, kind of, in, in, in a certain way. And, and it's a class that I've, I've noticed is 
forgiving of any um, level of pistol skill. Like for for example, the last time I took it, I was standing on the line with uh, Neil Widener from Active Self Protection, who shoots like a beast. And there were some other people there who I think it might have been maybe their first or second class that involved a holster. And the class scales completely. Um, so like you stand next to the, to someone on the line who's like a really good shooter and you kind of get a little competitive and they push you a little bit. And so Neil and I are, are, are doing those drills and we're, we're doing everything like fairly quickly, but from our side coming into it, cause it's not a shooting class. It's like a skills class. It's a good, it's a very good, um, assessment of what kind of automaticity you have when you're thinking about certain kinds of problems. And it's interesting to, and very enlightening to focus on those problems when you don't have to think about shooting. And then from the other perspective, from, from, from someone who's, who's still developing their pistol skills, um, it shows them how much they need to know. And it gives them a very good barometer of what they can do and get away with, with their current level of pistol skill and how to scale their assessment of any given problem, knowing what the upper limits of their pistol skill are. So people don't get out over their ahead of their skis. They don't try to solve a one and a half second problem with a three and a half second draw, but they also know that there is a world in which they can have a one and a half second draw and then are shown kind of a map on how to get there and where to go and who to ask for about that. It's like the best step one that you can have while it's also a great assessment of practical decision-making skills if you've already got pistol automaticity. And just to add to that a little bit, uh, totally agree with everything John said. I think the reason this class scales so well, you see a lot of people, they'll take their very first like holster uh, contextual shooting, like defensive shooting class, and they'll leave that class like, I suck. I can't do anything. I shouldn't even be carrying this gun. Maybe I should rethink my entire life. Uh, and that doesn't happen in this class because the context is broad enough that everyone can find some area where they are at least a little bit good at something. So it's like, it's one of those things where a beginner can leave this class feeling like they are empowered to, uh, to defend themselves in like six different directions. They might not be good at shooting and they know it, um, but they don't, it, it doesn't push them into giving up because there's so much other context there uh, where decision-making really comes in handy. Um, so I think this was two years ago, the one that I was at, uh, the, the, the one that I was at as a student, we had uh, a lady in class and she was kind of not like new to guns, but kind of newer, um, but she happened to be a teacher and she had amazing verbal skills. And when she got to her, her kind of scenario thing at the end, she was able to like totally deescalate that without even going to guns. And I think for someone to be confident in their peripheral skills is incredibly valuable. And that's, that's the kind of thing, it's an on-ramp for people to stay in this community instead of an off-ramp for people to say, no, I suck, I, I shouldn't be doing this. 
Tess, I see an awful lot of nodding over there. You got something else you want to add to that? Um, I, I was just kind of remembering that I actually got to take this class alongside my husband, who is like a, a probably a decade ahead of me in shooting skill and just kind of in this space in general. Um, and we both. Well, he's, he's literally Captain America. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, we both kind of got to do that five hour drive home and like share our different takeaways. Um, and, you know, obviously he's much um, more uh, skilled and experienced in the shooting side of things, but we're both kind of stepping into the contextual side of things at the same time. And just kind of everything that John and Sarah just said, totally rang true for the both of us. We both um, took different things and similar things away from that class. Um, one of my biggest takeaways from that class was, um, that I need to take some force on force classes because there were a lot of situations that John put us as students in that I had no parking spot for at all. I didn't have a, okay, if this, then I have these potential things I can do. Um, and the great thing about that is that I was able to go away from that class, having learned a bunch of things, not only from the class, but also from the, the view ahead, which was also amazing. Um, but I was able to go away from that class knowing, okay, these are the things I need to prioritize. These are the things that I need to work on going forward. All right. Well, I've got to give Murphy just like an amazing attaboy here. Cause when I talked to him about doing this episode, I said, pick some students who can really come in and articulate uh, everything that's going on in this class because as you guys were talking I just made three new show notes that, that we're going to go talk about now that that we haven't talked about well, previously go ahead in an ideal world where I could actually pull off setting this up and logistics were not a consideration mm-hmm. um, I would love to put together a weekend where it starts with street encounter skills and then we do uh, the uh, complete combatant image-based decision drills. Then we do a day of some very some kind of performance pistol class, and we end with something like uh, Craig's experiential learning lab that he runs at TACCON. I think that would be like the the tightest thing I could pull off, and and like a exactly the right progression. That would, would be an be amazing class. I don't know how to do it. I think we. I think it's called TACCON. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, I've been working with a few people on putting together some multi-instructor events here recently, and the logistics of pulling that off are just astronomical uh, as far as trying to make all the working pieces come together. At a certain point, you just have to say, all right, we can get accomplished what we can get accomplished. Uh, the facilities are the biggest problem is being able yeah. to have it where, where you can get all of the working parts there together. Um, Mead Hall range. I think we could probably do it at. Ooh, that would be a lovely range. place. That would be lovely. I'm sure Bill would appreciate that as well. <laughs> all right. um, I want to go back to, we talked about automaticity and, and John, you mentioned stopping the pistol and Sarah, you mentioned split times. So those kind of go together, at least the split times and stopping the pistol. And you also mentioned reaction time. Uh, there is science behind this. The Force Science uh, Institute has published numer- numerous articles on it. And 
what we know is that the average human reaction time to a known stimulus is roughly going to be a quarter of a second. Now, reaction time, people often confuse the terms response time and reaction time. Reaction time is the time it takes to recognize the stimulus and begin to implement your action. Response time is reaction time plus movement. So the response time is the entire time that it takes to carry, recognize the stimulus, implement your plan, and carry out the action. Well, we know that if the average human response time to a known stimulus is a quarter of a second, we don't know what it is to an unknown stimulus because there's no way to measure it. If we're chasing the technical shooting skills of those magical sub-quarter second splits, which are great if you can accomplish that and for match shooting, et cetera, we're already within our reaction time response time window. And when the stimulus changes and the information in the picture in front of us changes, it's going to take that same time that it takes to start an action is also the same, same time that it takes to stop an action. So if someone is in the process of shooting, it took them a quarter of a second to recognize the stimulus and then they had to initiate their action. It's going to take them that same at least a quarter of a second to recognize the stimulus that the situation has changed. And then they have to implement that stop. It's like a check swing in baseball. And that's where we get the shots that go over the person that has fallen. That's where we get shots in the side and the back as the person is trying to run away. And we can chase these magic sub-second split times, but we can't, we should not walk around in the world thinking that is the end-all be-all. Uh, and I will point to a real-life example of this in progress process is uh, Tony McBride, LAPD officer. She's a competition shooter. When she's out on the competition range, she burns it down. She was involved in a real-life shooting that was captured on video, and her split time slowed down to about a half a second, which is where LAPD trains so that you can process that information and make decisions because every each individual shot is its own legal decision. Yeah, I think a lot of the value of being able to get split times faster than you can think is so that the gun is ready to go before you have to think about it, uh-huh. right? So if if the gun has fired and settled in 0.19 or 0.2, and it takes you point three to go through the whole decision-making process you don't have to then at point three start spending half a second or a whole second looking for your sights again or thinking about the status of your gun the gun status is settled business before your mental status is and that's the benefit there but that doesn't mean i'm going to shoot every shot at 0.19 just because the gun is settled doesn't mean that's the go cue mm-hmm. to fire the next shot. Yeah. It just means it's ready in advance. I've done some experimentation on the range, and I've talked about this in a previous episode where I go shoot all right, two, to the, two to the body, one to the head. Everybody calls it a failure drill. It's only a failure drill if you do an assessment between the second body shot and the head shot. If you're doing it as fast as you can, it's just two to the body, one to the head. Uh, if I run it as hard as I can go, it's a pre-made decision. I'm coming out of the holster two to the chest, transition one to the head. And if I come out fast as I can go for the first shot, 
I confirm my sights and make the sec make a conscious decision to make the second shot. I transition to the head, confirm my sights, and make a conscious decision to make the second shot. The difference in those times is 0.29 seconds from start to finish. But I made a decision for each shot in the, in the slower time, and I'm personally okay with that. Murphy, are you still doing the drill where you try to measure the stop times? I, I've got to the point where I'll do maybe one or two students as a demo. After that, everyone starts to game it because they know it's coming. Uh, the big push I've got is putting people under a cognitive load for those decisions. Uh, one of my favorite experiences, and I don't call them drills as much as I call them experiences. Because uh-huh. uh, I'm giving people an opportunity to, to experience something, uh, an application uh, and it can be a pepper spray or verbalization, or in this case, live fire, uh, an application of a particular te- technique and uh, based upon a visual cue. And I'll, when they have to transition from verbalization uh, to, to making that, uh, typically I find a quarter to a half second delay. Now, I'll use a couple of students to illustrate that to the class and that is why these street encounters frequently begin with that verbal exchange. Hey, man, can I ask you a question? What's going on? Where'd you get those shoes as they're closing the distance? And good people want to be good people, but they find themselves cognitively loaded and consequently behind the decision or, or uh, the, the reality curve, I guess you would call it. Yeah. I know when you were here this, this past spring, it was like crazy, just horrific rainy weather and i know we had to to adjust some of our, our stuff on the fly and so i wasn't sure when john hoffman mentioned that drill I went, oh yeah we did do that the year before i just didn't remember this time uh, tessa you yeah. talked we talked about a parking spot in the brain and when you said that i remembered a real life incident in which we had a situation of a, an individual who was in a hotel room and we had information that uh, he was in this room, possibly suicidal, and that he was armed with multiple weapons. And that we had gone in and we had had the management call the people from the surrounding rooms out and down off that floor. And our game plan was we were going to go up and we were going to knock on the door and I was going to call the guy out. And I'm the first guy in the stack. And as we start making our way up the hallway, everybody got it? Yeah, good, let's go. We start up the hallway, and as I'm reaching for the doorknob, the guy opens the door, and we were both mutually surprised to see each other. <laughs> and so this whole thing that I had planned in my head was gone. I was blue screen of death from the old Windows computer days, and then he was kind of <laughs> no, blue they still screen. Do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I use a, I use a Mac, so I don't I don't see that ever. And he was the same thing. He was like. What are you doing here? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is how much we were so both so shocked to see each other that we were both just frozen in in action. And finally, one of the guys is in the back of the line, just walks by me, he gives me one of these sideways looks as he goes by and grabs the guy and spins him around. I'm like, thank you, because I was just completely shut down. Wow. And Tessa, talk about what places you learn for like parking spots in your brain things you picked up from the class um like uh, parts of the class where I realized I didn't have a parking spot right and that you came away from it with um 
there are a lot of moments in the class. I'll pick a few. Um, I remember one distinctly watching oh, it happen. I actually would love to hear from your perspective. Genuinely, I would love it. But go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so the one that I'm thinking of is uh, where like the first day, like the first thing that we did outside of the classroom, um, we were working with pepper spray. And I felt mostly okay with how I like handled the pepper spray scenarios ish from somewhat of a distance. We were starting out with somewhat of a distance. So, you know, I started arcing and kind of moving away and making distance. And then John put me in a situation where I couldn't do that. I couldn't back away. I was in a corner. He had me cornered and no, I didn't have, I had nothing for that. Like I, I had, I had to have him tell me what, what do I do? Like, what do you want me to do? What's the answer to this equation? Cause I don't, I don't, I don't have one. Um, and then the other one, which John took me aside and had a little powwow conversation with me about, and I actually do, I would love to hear it from your perspective. Um, but I basically, we were doing gun stuff. I had my blue gun and um, it was scenarios and John's coming at me with mean words and advancing on me. And these mean words were so mean that he was telling me he was going to kill me. And um, mind you, these are scenarios. These are not, I'm not, I wasn't subject to abuse. Um, and I didn't draw my gun. And so he broke the scenario and was like, we need to have a conversation because I am advancing on you. I have means, all of these things, and you're not drawing your gun. Um, so yeah, that was kind of a situation where um, yeah, it was like, I didn't have a parking spot, but I also, I didn't have a, an answer. Yeah. Same thing. No parking spot, no answer to the equation. So, yeah. That was the one that stuck out in my mind. I remember you locking down as like completely vapor lock and then John taking you over to the side and you two having a conversation and I didn't hear what was said. And then, uh, later when he came back around and kind of did, did a different scenario with you, you sprang into action. And it was like, okay, he's given me permission to defend myself now. Yes. And you did so. And it was like, it was, it was kind of fun to see the mental switch get flipped. There's yeah, like, oh, I it could, is okay. Go ahead, John. If I could, uh, what I told Tessa was, if someone tells you they're going to kill you, you got to believe them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you act accordingly. And, and yeah. literally, and, and that was actually, I, I, you used the expression, give herself permission. And I think that's what, that, that's what it boiled down to is a, a self-permission for that particular moment. And then after that, she was magnificent. Yeah. Tessa strikes me as an extraordinarily polite person who is also pretty quick on her feet. And I know in the, the OC scenario, you cut off her ability to use her feet and escape. And that was another one that I, I remember the watching the transition take place because when she she looked for an avenue of escape and when it wasn't there, she's was like, oh, my goodness, what do I do now that I can't run away? Mm-hmm. And then later she was put in some other situations. There was not that same that same thing. Right. Haltman, you got anything? Yeah. No, I, I think that's good insight. Um, John- I'm also a runaway person, so <laughs> I get that. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. Yeah, when I ran Ray, track Ray in, when I ran track in high school, they had to time me with a calendar 
So running away is not not exactly a, an option. Oh, I see the guy's got the starting pistol and the sundial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, well, and we'll be back tomorrow to get wings this time when he comes in and finishes. I could run slow, but I could run slow for a long time. Now I can't do either. I just run slow and not for a long time. Well, now uh, we've got driver's licenses. So. That's right. That's right. Uh, Murphy, did you have anything you wanted to follow up with on that before we move down? Well, and it, it's a it's a, a term I've recently lear, learned. U stress, EU stress. It's a good kind of stress, and it, it puts you in a place where you, you have your higher cognitive skills are, are are being challenged, and it's be able, be able to put people there and hold them there through a scenario from the before, the during, and the after. I think it's a really value real value of the class. I I don't want to crush people. Because then they become demoralized. You, you've got to have some form of, of a methodology or, or a, a win. But, but at the same time, people need to be pulsed pretty hard. To that, to when, they, when they depart the class, they feel uh, comp, confidence based upon demonstrated competence across the spectrum of the likely scenarios that they're going to face. Right. And that demonstrated competence goes back to the thing that I picked up in, in Sarah's comment earlier is what are you good at finding something in the typical shooting class? We tend to think of every problem gets solved with the firearm. You know, we got a hammer, so we got to find nails and that's not necessarily the best answer. And your class gives the other options of OC or running away or verbally de-escalating. And Sarah, that just really struck out to me when you mentioned, you know, finding out what you're good at. It may be finding out that your limit is, is that you just, when the time comes, you just won't be able to draw that pistol. So you better find other aspects. Or it may be finding out that, hey, I can actually, I thought I would be a person that would draw a sheet, but I have these other things that I can do that would work. And I'm going to throw it back to you to, to start off the comments. Oh, me? or him? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, no, you I'm... made the good point. Murphy can't do that. No. <laughs> um, so I think you've got this like menu of skills that will work to get you out of trouble. And, you know, you're right. We do focus on the gun skills more than anything else because that's the fun part, quite frankly. Like, who doesn't want to shoot fast? It's really fun. Um, but like, really, that is such a small part of any problem solving um, that, you know, if we were looking at this rationally, which we don't, like people don't look at these issues rationally. Um, but if we were, uh, we'd spend all our time learning verbal judo and how <laughs> you know, to whatever, drive. They're, whatever they're calling that these days. Yeah, like how to drive defensively and, you know, how to have good cardiovascular health. Um we really wouldn't prioritize shooting as much as we do, but shooting's really fun and there's nothing wrong with, with practicing it and getting good at it and making it a priority. Um, so I think one of the cool things about John's class is like, we all know that we should be working on those peripheral skills, um, but they're just not as fun. And John takes them and makes them more interactive and more fun and it's more of like a manageable challenge. Um, so it's not like, uh, it's not like, oh, I'm going to this like hard charging, 
a class where I'm going to get my butt kicked all weekend. It's like a manageable, accessible introduction to this material that anyone can take and improve from wherever they're at. Tessa, Tessa was talking about parking spaces, and every time that I counter uh, stuff like John Murphy's programs or anything that involves managing unknown contacts, I forget that not everyone is has had a lot of experience with crazy people yelling at them. Yes. And I'm not just describing John. I'm describing like the <laughs> the whole scenario of like so so for, so for an example, I lived uh, for a couple years back in Philly down the like literally down the block from a horrendous homeless shelter. Like underfunded hole in the wall homeless shelter. And every single day, multiple times a day, I'd walk past it and I would basically play the homeless interaction lottery every single day. And some people want to walk down the street next to you. And I'm like, you know, 22 years old and, you know, uh, art student and stuff. And, you know, you learn how to tell which homeless person you can bum a cigarette to without getting stabbed mm-hmm. or you can tell whether or not the people across the street are having fun or having a conflict when it all sounds about the same at the same volume, right? And that turned into something that it was like just very habitual for me. Like, oh yeah, I'm living downtown. There are crazy people on the edge of snapping everywhere and all around me. Anytime you step in in an intersection, the car that might may or may not stop for that stop sign or that stoplight, and you got to be ready to have an argument with the driver. You got to be ready for the uh, guy who you don't give a dollar to to start slandering your ethnicity immediately. Like it's all on the table, and it happens like so many times a day that it's like totally normal. If I can weigh in here, John, sure. John I'm going to re- recall your exact exercise here in Morristown. And I I approached as someone who was legitimately looking, for, I think it was for a church, something like that. And you scaled perfectly. Now I know, based upon your extensive experience, you are like, wham, and then you're like, okay, oh, this is somebody I can help, and then dial down. And it's that, di- it's, I'm actually using now the, the analogy, the visualization of a dial with a big red button in the middle of it. And yeah, uh, we, we live in one, two, three, four, but we, we take classes where all we do is we come out and we mash the big red button. And uh, you, 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 you singularly impressed me now in my travels with your scale in that regard people people need to have the experience of managing those those kinds of interactions and i think a lot of people wind up behind the time curve because they don't recognize it um and a lot of people live in a place where they you know walk from their front door to their 
driveway to their car. They get in their car, they drive somewhere, and they walk in the front door of that place. And there's not a whole lot of like stranger interaction that doesn't occur in a context that filters a lot of people out, right? Like you're you're probably not going to get stabbed in a Chili's by a homeless guy who you didn't give a dollar to, right? It's like, like, like go, going into establishments filters people out, but the thing that they need to be aware of are places like parking lots and um, gas stations almost entirely. Like that's, that's where people need to think about what they're going to run into, what kind of things they're going to run into and have some kind of like pre-planned menu of options to recognize what's normal there and have at least some kind of practice dealing with it. Because the first time that you run into someone who's like invading your personal space shouldn't be at the gas pump at like 1030 at night. Yeah. And that's something I kind of ran into working in healthcare. So like my past life before I was a holster person, uh, I worked at a trauma hospital and I do remember going in there as a student and coming from like a relatively low key, like suburban life. The first time that you have to have a rational conversation with somebody who is totally irrational, that is like a shock to your system. Because you're like, well, of course, I just say this rational thing and they'll respond rationally. And then when you realize that doesn't work, you're like, oh, this is different. And over time, you you kind of get better at it and you start to learn to just uh, kind of meet them where they're at and keep calm no matter what they're throwing at you and kind of direct them to what you need them to do. But the first time you you say something to them and they don't respond like a normal person. It's a little bit of like a reset. And I think a lot of folks, a lot of folks don't quite like, they're just not really exposed to that as much. I know I wasn't until I started that job. And um, I, I spend a lot of time in online spaces and uh, Tessa knows this particular women's group that we're, <laughs> we're both in and we see the posts in there and we're like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> But uh, you see it a lot in those groups. Um, somebody will post like a story about, here's what happened to me today. Oh my goodness, can you believe I went from my gas pump to the gas station and this man asked me for a dollar. I couldn't believe it. And I had my hand on my gun. I was so glad I had my gun. And you're kind of, you kind of look at that and you're like, I'm a dude probably just wanted a dollar. Um, but their reaction to it is extreme because they're just not used to it and they're not used to reading those context cues. And yeah, there's, they have, there's, they have no ahead, scale. I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, Lee. No, go ahead with what you were saying. They, they've got no scale. Uh, they look at the world as a, uh, a, a binary shoot, no shoot kind of thing. And I've got one, one tool, one implement for everything I encounter. There's no recognition that it could be a, hey, can I ask you a question? And it could be a legitimate question. Or it could be a ruse to achieve proximity. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it might be the local crazy guy, and I've encountered one in, in Pittsburgh that uh, you know we we pop out the uh, the pepper spray and give it a click 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 click. And all it, it, they've got to have a, a the capacity to understand the circumstance and map refined and defined skills to that problem. And the majority of the training industry just does not 
uh, cater to that requirement because there's no money in it. You know, yeah. how I know. Yeah. I think that, I think there's two important things. One, like you said, scale, and the other, like what Sarah said, is exposure. Well, th- what you were talking about with like uh, it's, it's it's basically like language, right? You need to be able to recognize whether or not someone's talking sane or crazy and be able to give right back to them whatever it is they're talking. I can't tell you how many times I've you know been been walking down the street and all of a sudden like you can't cross the street, can't go here and you're like stuck with crazy. Mm-hmm. And they're like talking crazy at you and they're walking next to you or they're like walking near you. And you can't have a normal conversation with them. But you got to learn how to talk their particular brand of crazy. Put them at ease by talking their nonsense right back to them and keep moving in another direction. Right. And like being able to code switch to the language that who of, you know, the native language of your encounter. And to be able to scale in that is like, yeah. I think most of most of personal protection. It's a, a cross cultural language issue. Uh, when you when you encounter uh, respect cultures, uh, Middle Eastern people will communicate much closely, more closely than than others. Uh, and, and then you just is this a problem or not? And if people are just in their one pathway, well, as you mentioned, they're 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 kind of set up for failure. Mm-hmm. I think I mentioned this to you the last time I saw you, John. Um, I was walking through the parking lot of the grocery store, and I heard, "Sir, sir, sir, yes. can you help me?" And, and I immediately went into, "This sounds like the start of some kind of scenario training." This sort of like urgent, "Sir, sir, sir, can you help me?" And then all of a sudden, you're roped into this situations you can't get out of and it's like oh i'm like all right what is this going to be and i turn around and there's this kind of like i guess cookie cutter you know middle-aged lady looks like she shops at the hallmark store or or whatever and she's running up to me and she's got this thing in her hand and i'm like look at her hands like someone's yelling at me and they're moving towards me i'm gonna look at their hands and i'm gonna look around and i'm looking at her hands and i'm looking around for Whoever else is gonna is gonna jump in on this because I'm thinking, all right, this is someone who's gonna get my attention. And it's gonna turn into this thing, and I'm like, this is just some gray-haired middle-aged lady with a soda in her hand. What is happening? And she's like, sir, 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 could you could you open this soda for me? And I'm like, is this a trap? <laughs> <laughs> like my my first thought was. <laughs> Is this for real? Because like I'm not like a tall person, so I'm not usually asked to help. Like, could you get the cereal off the top shelf? Could you lift this for me? Like people, and I, like I generally just don't look approachable. I'm not. I don't exude approachability and friendliness. And this, you don't. <laughs> this, this like Midwestern lady's running up to me with a soda in her hand. I just see this like black object in her hand. I'm like, oh god, here it comes. And so I opened her soda. End of story. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes it happened. is just what it seems to be. And then he fixed the cable. Yeah, something similar happened to me a couple of weeks ago. So 
Uh, I work in downtown St. Paul, and my office is about a block from a homeless encampment. And so you see all kinds of stuff in and out of there. See, you see things. And the other day I walked out, it was probably nine o'clock at night. It was dark and I had my dog with me and I'm walking out towards my van and there's a dude in the parking lot and he's kind of shifty staring at me a little bit and he looks sketchy, like he's dirty and uh, he looks sketchy and he's kind of moving around and he's looking in my direction and he's kind of orienting in my direction. And I'm like, hmm, this is interesting, but I didn't get a bad vibe off of him. Like I got a good vibe. So I got a little closer and he's looking at me and I'm like, hey, I think my dog wants to say hi to you. And then he pet my dog. And that was that. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, that Murphy really talks about in his class, you know, the recognition prime decision making. And so that you begin to recognize the cues and pick up on things. And that allows you to shuffle through your decision package. And it's funny, oddly enough, I was in Murfreesboro. Tennessee and I was coming out of out of a, a hotel checking out going out to get in my truck to, to leave to drive home from after a class and as I walk out there was a couple standing there holding hands talking to someone else in the driver's seat of a pickup truck and it looked to me like and the, the pickup truck was a work truck and my first thought was those are all co-workers talking about where they're going to work for the day and I walked on around to my truck and I'm putting stuff in and all of a sudden I hear this sir just like you were just just saying John and I turned around and the, and it's the guy and he's there wasn't movement associated with my arrival because they didn't approach me like directly like on a pathway but they had turned and oriented towards me and the pickup truck had driven off and he starts him with the sir sir and then he goes starts with the spill of you know, my wife and I are having a hard time, you know, everything. I, here comes the panhandling thing. And I just looked at him, sorry, sir, can't help you. And I want to touch on that for a second as we all tell people to say that kind of stuff in the class. We need to give them a parking spot in their brain for when that doesn't work. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah. The, the number and, of times where, sorry, man, I don't have any cash. Sorry, yeah. I can't help you has turned into like, mf this and this and that yeah. especially when you're in a situation where you are like obviously loading stuff into your car and you can't just like walk away you're now mm -hmm. you now have to listen to them rail at you about yeah. how you've wronged them for not right. having a dollar or or for yeah. like obviously seeing through mm -hmm. that they're you know like yeah you guys are having a hard time you look like yeah. meth heads i'm sure yeah. it's a hard time and oftentimes like, that 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 escalation on their part is just an intimidation factor for you. So you panically handed them money. And sometimes though, it's the flip of the crazy switch and you gotta fight. Yeah. And when I told the guy, I'm sorry, I can't help you, I said it kind of like that. He started up again. Well, and I just looked at him just barely sternly said, I said, I can't help you. And I was watching for his reaction and I was waiting because they were still holding hands and my go signal, because you were talking about saying there was watching hands. I said, if those hands come apart. Oh, it's it. That's it. And Especially I don't know what she starts talking really loud too. Like, oh, you yeah. better get him. Yeah. And I don't know whether she like 
pulled him back imperceptibly from me and, she, and he felt it or whatever. But all of a sudden there was a change in their demeanor and like they both simultaneously took a step backwards and said, okay. And then I just eased on around my truck, keeping my eye out on them and I get in and I back up and they go off and they're going to try to find somebody else in the parking lot. But, you know, it's those situations one, you got to recognize them coming, which means you got to be paying attention. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of kind of know the signs of John spends a lot of time on pre-assault indicators. You know, so you can kind of read what's going on in their body language while that whole interview process is taking place so that you can be ahead of the decision-making curve. Yeah, my beep would it have been their hands coming apart i had already keyed in on that because there's no way they can he can come at me and still be holding her hands and if they go especially if their hands came apart and if they had started to spread to envelop me (laughs) no thank you no somebody was going to have a rude morning at that (laughs) point and i was already in my decision tree three decisions down the if what you know if then circles that are going on in my brain my recognition problem decision making was already kicked into overdrive there talking about scale one of the things that i've found and it's and it's kind of hard to simulate but one of the things that i have found works incredibly well is eye contact gaze and attention right if someone walks up to you like typical parking lot thing uh i'm walking to my car i always park fairly far away mostly so i can drive out of the least conflicted areas of the parking lot and not have a parking lot fender bender uh but it's also like i'm the only person walking this far and if someone else is walking this far it has something to do with me right and so some guy walking parallel to me I make sure that he sees me seeing him and he starts to cut through the cars and I stop dead and I look him up and down. And the instant that he realizes that he is being assessed, he stops where he is and has the conversation from 15 feet, very respectively. Hey man, his hands are up. He knows that if he's going to get a dollar or whatever it is, it requires me to be at ease and for him to not come any further. And you don't even need to start saying, Hey, don't come any further, Mm -hmm. you know, um, hanging out in front of a bar at one o'clock in the morning, uh, having a beer and a smoke with a friend. Someone walks down the other side of the street, looks over at you, You look directly at them and watch them the whole time. You watch them cross the street to walk back towards you. And if both of you watch him do the whole thing, all you hear is, have a good evening. And half a dozen times that I've made that work. And like the bottom of the scale is deliberate, focused, unflinching attention. And most of the time, that even keeps you out of verbalization. Yeah, the, the things that, that I pick up on, I want to throw it back to Murphy after I, I say this. Um, things that I pick on, movement associated with the rival, mm-hmm. people that continue to 
try to close distance even after you've started the, you know, I, I see you and you're not going to approach me without me knowing about it. And if they still keep trying to close the distance and if it's multiple people, if they start trying to spread. So yeah, those are like my three of my signals that I pick up on quickly. Uh, Murphy, you got something on pre-assault indicators you can throw in here? I think you're muted. There's some construction going on around here. I can mute a little bit. Thanks for the heads up on that. All right. Movement, obviously, associated with your arrival is, is, is crucial. Uh, and it can, it, can, it can be just as simple as a head nod. Uh, I, and recently, I had a student from the Ohio, uh, Cleveland, Cleveland area. Uh, she was walking a mall carrying two bags. A guy walked past her using a, a head, earpiece on his phone. And he said, yeah, yeah, she's got two bags as they walk past. And that bit of information was pretty crucial to what came subsequent to that, where she had a a confrontation in the parking lot, uh, put her bags down, popped her her pepper spray out, and did the rattlesnake, and and just waited. And the guy smiled, nodded, and got back in the car. If you can see it coming, you know, soon, soon enough, gird your loins as it were like okay this is going to be what it is and then at that moment be resolute they tend to look elsewhere because they're, they're they're there to victimize someone they're not there to fight someone their health care plan isn't that good yeah <laughs> and uh it, 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 all the way across the spectrum of conflict uh from pleasant well from pleasant exchange to conflict to criminality we have to have that dial to dial to that right point and be resolute at that moment to dissuade someone and be to, so in order to be deselected, as it were. Right. Tessa, do you have anything you'd like to add here? I think I have a bit of a question okay. um, because uh, a lot of what we're talking about here um, and these scenarios that we're kind of addressing, um, a lot of these people are coming to us or we're coming to them, like there's an approach in like from one person or the other. Um, And I think I actually brought this scenario up in John's class. um, But I had a situation with a homeless man when I was walking through really public area, you know, Pike's Place in Seattle. It's like people starting packed really close to each other. Um, I'm with two other girls. At this point in my life, I knew nothing about self-defense. I didn't carry any tools at all, really. Um, and this very large homeless man began following me very close to me. Um, and there was no, there was no like approach or anything. We're all just in a pack of people kind of walking. Um, and he began whispering things, not to me, but about me next to me. Um, and I, yeah, no parking spot for that, but I was thinking through the scenario, like while I'm in it what do I do? Like, how, how do I, can I can't get away. Um, I didn't want to address him because I didn't think that he was, you know, had the mental capacity to respond in a reasonable way. Um, I thought maybe I'd escalate it by, by showing him that I'm aware of you. Uh, yeah. What are your guys' thoughts on that? (laughs) Murphy. Well, uh, sure. What she encountered there was the crazy creep factor. And it was in time of her life before she was switched on. Uh, I would recommend a decisive disengagement, and maybe a little bit, a little bit of loud, like, "Get hey, hey, get away from me! Get away from me! This man's this man is harassing me. 
why you're separated. Uh, and, and of course, in that part of the country, there's no telling what kind of response that would, would engender. Uh, but definitely separation, the time, distance, speed factor would have been your friend. And as you've illustrated numerous times in my class, you are pretty fleet of foot. <laughs> and it would have been time, that would have been an excellent time to execute the Nike defense and, and grab some space. <laughs> Yeah, that was definitely a thought. Like that was something that I wanted to do, but I had two other friends with me. And so I didn't feel like I could exit. Uh, I call that the, the fight is anchored at that point. Uh, and, and particularly, and even now that you're trained, you've had exposure and, and now you're the anchor. You are, you are the lead person in that cir- circumstance. Mm-hmm. And getting other people involved in their own defense when well, the best solution I've, I've, I've felt come up upon with that is to have conversations with them beforehand hmm. uh, to lay out what this scenario can look like. And then I'll admit, I got this from John Farnham. I steal from the best. And then, and, and, the, and the statement is, we're leaving now. We're leaving out that door now. There's no further conversation. It is the equivalent to my mind of your fucking pilot wingman calling break right. We're leaving now, break right, and give them a direction and a distance, and you create distance and, and, and move uh, in, that, in that fashion. Uh, it's very hard to, to herd the cat to people who don't understand. Or, uh, but wait, what, what do you mean? No, no this, is, this isn't that bad. Uh, they, they don't understand that uh, the hairs in the back of your neck have stood up because you have been exposed to these situations, you, you are equipped for these situations, and you're prepared for them. People do not understand how quickly situations devolve, mm-hmm. and and violence becomes the, the coin of the the coin of the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you did, did the best you could do at that moment, and but but now well now you've got you've got more and you've got better. Yeah, and now that I think about it, you you addressed a lot of what you just said um, in the class, um, kind of on. I want to say this was on day one. Uh, when we were going through, yeah, through going through scenarios, it was, you know, we didn't have our rope guns out yet. Um, and you kind of went through the importance of talking about those kinds of things with your significant other or people kind of within your group and kind of having an understanding um, with with those people who are close to you. Uh, if you've got people, particularly two casino carriers, that are have come to an understanding and are trained and equipped similarly, and they can operate in concert. Uh, the opposing team has got little, little, little for that. Uh, it's a big enough day for them, like watching uh, Bigfoot ride the Loch Ness space monster into Elvis's or Loch Ness monster into Elvis's spaceship to encounter an effectively armed citizen. Imagine if they 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 they, they miss re- re- situations so much that there are actually two armed citizens in front of them, in front of them, like, I don't know, a husband-wife combination, perhaps. And uh, I've, I've, I've done some work in that regard, and it is devastating, the, the end result, when two people split and produce uh, weapons or engage in, 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 uh, engage in verbalization and, and uh, what task loading, one person's talking, the other person's looking around, the other team is not ready for that. And that's kind of the zenith, I think. That you, that you allude to. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, my mind is going to the parking lot of a Mexican restaurant in Virginia right now, John. Oh, yeah. <laughs> holy, holy cow. <laughs> Tumbleweeds are still blowing through that parking lot. They're holy getting mad. Cow. Get yeah. mad and the ugly music is still playing. Uh, Tessa, oh, so, just oh, let, was, let me hit one thing and I'll yeah. come back to you, John. Um, one other piece of advice that I would give in a situation, something like that, if you're in a public place such as the market like that or a sporting event or whatever, uh, go to where you might think police or security there you go. would be go over there. And hopefully that deterrence factor, when the guy sees you approaching the cop, they peel off. Yeah. And of course, then they become somebody else's target. Um, but Hey, your job is to take care of you and yeah. you can go. And that would be one way to deal with that in such settings. And even, you know, now that you are trained and that you, you do have parking spots in your brain for those things, that's still a strategy to use because if you can make that person leave you alone through that, that is much better than engaging in the actual confrontation. Yeah. John Hopman. So we're talking about a, a situation where you're kind of, stuck there. Maybe you're in the midst of a crowd and there's not a lot of space to go. So I've, I've been on subways and buses where mm. you're stuck in the metal tube with whoever happens to show up, right? And it's not unusual for there to be a <clears throat> someone on that subway car who's not sharing reality with us. And they are acting in a obviously strange way and there's really no you know i'm stuck there until the next stop at least but the chances are if someone in a crowd of people is or in a crowded space is behaving in a way that you're noticing other people are noticing it too and you can recruit other people in that space you make eye contact with other folks in that space. You notice, you mutually notice the 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 person who's having a uh, an event, who's hosting the event on on your subway car. You notice, they notice. You look at each other, and you both are aware that you understand that this is occurring in your presence, and. Most of the time, everyone kind of starts to keep an eye on it to the point where, you know what, I'm going to hang out. I'm going to stay on this train and I'm going to take it the next six stops to where I'm going because everyone in here kind of has a little bit of a handle on whatever is going on with this person, especially if they're from the area, right? especially if the people you're now kind of like forced teamed with as a result of being in proximity with them y'all kind of notice and yeah this like you can be in a situation like that with someone who is just this side of violent and it'll never go past that because everyone's keeping an eye on it and that attention usually keeps it right below a boil and then on top of it even if so like uh, every, back when I lived on the East Coast, I'd go to New York pretty frequently, and you can't carry in New York, you know, um, and so you're stuck with not a lot of tools. But 
you also have the benefit of the crowd and a, and a, and a, and a culture of people who are tuned into that and also have a, have a high tolerance for how weird other people in their environment can get and a low tolerance for them when they cross the line. So you're all kind of already in a team. So you might be sitting there being the only person in earshot of whatever nonsense they're saying, but everyone else kind of knows it's happening too. It's not, it's not invisible. So you're not completely isolated and, and, and on your own. And you can make, you can, make sure that other people notice it too without escalating it. Yeah. I think I saw a subway in a movie once. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have anything like that. Yeah. But you're just toilets on wheels. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I have been to, to Atlanta and ridden Marta. So uh, that's an experience in and of itself. But uh, John, you, you mentioned a term there that I want to want to stick with for a second. That's forced taming. And the best example that I can think of is the person that wants to come up and help you carry your bags. Oh yeah. Or help you with your groceries in the, in, in, yeah. Here, let me help you put those groceries in your car. And, and instead of now it's you and them, it's now we, and they're trying to create that thing. Well, here, let me help you carry these things inside. For sure. Get that access. But all the things they do to us, we do right back to them. Right. You know, like we talk about things like, uh, pre-assault indicators like target glancing is my favorite one. Someone is approaching you. They're looking around. They're looking around for other people to make sure that there aren't any witnesses. Mm -hmm. The instant you start doing that back to them, the dynamic flips. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, me too. How about <laughs> yeah. that? Right. And, and, and these, all of the, all of those things, like all of those pre-assault indicators, you can just start mirroring them back too if if you think it's appropriate but like all of this is is, is a two-way street you know we can work it on them and on other people as well and do things that make sure that i mean I, I remember one time uh i got i got approached by someone on the street and it wasn't going well and i stepped out between the two parked cars right in the middle of the street that way anyone who was driving by had to get involved in what was happening, you know, instead of it happening on the other side of a parked car and the pe people would drive by and not even notice what was going on. Right. So I force teamed whoever would be approaching in a car into the situation. Right. So we can play these things back and forth with the general public too. Once we have an idea of what criminals are doing. Sarah, do you, would you like to address Tessa's original question? And do you have anything on the force teaming aspect? No, that's kind of out of my lane. Um, I am not an expert on any of this use of force stuff. So Whoa. I would have been like, oh. <laughs> well, I don't know what I would have done. Like, well, I thought she asked Mama a great question. Do. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Murphy, yeah, I guess. I'm sorry. I, 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 I forget the name of the uh, the mass murderer, Jeffrey Dahmer. That was the guy. He was the forced teaming expert, and it would be we are not going to let you do that. Uh, he would also do. He would wear the fake arm cast. Oh, was that Dahmer or Ted Bundy? Yeah, well, you're right. It's Bundy. Yep, yep, yep. Bundy, correct. And he would do the uh, we, 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 we. 
Well, there, there is no we here, pal. Move, move on. Yeah, the, the force teaming thing is interesting because I have spent, how old am I? I've spent 33 years in Minnesota where if you pull off the side of the road, you will have no less than six cars stopping to ask you if you need help. Um, if you go into the ditch in the snow, you will have a line of people helping to push your car out. So some of that is normal for us. And uh, it can be very difficult to figure out what is the normal amount uh, of expected politeness versus what is like a prelude to an assault. Oh, yeah. And I noticed this when I when I moved here, people would be like polite to me way more than I wanted and sort of extend the duration of any interaction. And those are all enormous red flags to me. I'm like someone who's being overly nice to you and, and, and not letting you like making it socially awkward to leave the, the, the interaction. I'm like, this is a trap. I'm getting set up for something. I'm like, no, the guy behind the count, like, or like it's being like, not only is it making me anxious about, the scenario it's also making me angry at them because even if it's innocent they're being disrespectful of my east coast calibrated time and i had such a rough time adjusting to people being nice to me here that was like the hardest part i felt like a dog that had like never seen grass before like you like some video of like shelter dog sees grass for the first time and it's like doesn't know how to walk on the grass that's 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 how I felt. Like I had to completely change my my metrics and no longer think that like someone being nice to me in public meant that and now they're going to go someplace weird with it or they're going to be like can you can you buy me a tank of gas or or you know do, you. do you know where I can get some crack? Like why would I know that? <laughs> I can just picture you coming home. Sarah, Sarah, this person said hello to me. And then they asked me how I was doing. What did they mean by that? So they probably said, wanted to say hello and how you were doing. Oh, yeah. it's It was really hilarious to watch this like cultural shift. I remember one time John was driving and I was in the passenger seat. And we approached an intersection. And Minnesota has a little different order of go where it's like, oh, no, you, no, 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 you. And John approached the intersection and nobody was going and he honked his horn. And I was like, no, no, no. What, we don't do that here. What happened was that someone made a left <laughs> left turn from the lane right of me and cut me off in front of me. Like I was in the left turn lane and the person next to me just made a left across my lane and I honked at them. And Sarah was like, you can't do that here. I'm like... <laughs> Where I'm from, you would throw a fountain soda through the open window of their car for that, and they would know they deserved it. <laughs> what do you mean I can't honk my horn in Minnesota? Yeah, it's different. It's definitely different. If you're interested in cultural exchange, so John uh, John Murphy has his view ahead, view ahead video on pre-assault indicators, which is amazing. Everybody should watch that. But if you're interested on how to uh, uh, translate that to a Minnesotan uh, cultural context, um, there's this amazing video, and it's called How to Speak Minnesotan. Um, it, it's on YouTube now, but it's like this old, it, it's like 80s television. 
<laughs> and it's spot on with all of the Minnesota customs and traditions. So if you're visiting the Midwest, um, I would recommend watching that so you you have a little idea what to expect. Remind me to tell you about my trip to Wisconsin a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, I want to hear about that. That. Was, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm not from Wisconsin. And I'm from a little town that is near Madison, Georgia. And when people ask me, so where are you from then? Because every sentence ends in then. Yeah, where are you from then? I said, I'm down from, from down around Madison. They might leave off the Georgia part and just say, no, 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 you're not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, we've been talking a lot about the, pre, the pre-incident the, uh, issues and then some of the during the incident. John, you also spend time in the class on the after the incident. and. Let's touch on that a little bit. Well, absolutely. Uh, it's before, during, and after, and there's there's going to be an after. And uh, among the consequences of the after will possibly be hemorrhaging. So we covered tourniquet pressure dressings uh, in the class. I recommend people take a full trauma class uh, from Caleb Causey of Lone Star Medics, Dark Angel Medical. Uh, even Greg Lefferts also does a fine class. And then, well, the police are going to arrive. And cops give me a box of chocolates. You don't know what you're going to get. Uh, but you, will, you are guaranteed that there will be, will be an interest in what's going on there. And you need to, to transition then to legal strategies, post-incident, verbalization. And essentially, you've got uh, two choices. Uh, you've got the, the Masayub approach of a statement and then silence. And there's a lot to commend you. And I will discuss that in the class. And then you've got the uh, officer. I wish to consult with an attorney and, and uh, assert my constitutional rights. And you shut up right then and there. But either way, you've got to understand the dynamics of that situation uh, and the, the pluses and minuses. Uh, because there will, be, there will be an after, definitely. Uh, having spent some time in the interrogation room, with members of my of the opposing team, back in the, back in the day, well, we, the interview room, uh, and, and recognizing that capture shock is a thing. You have just had a life altering moment, and you may be seeking validation, and you may have officer friendly there saying, "Fine," and, and then what happened? And why were you down there? Right? And then what happened? And using and it's just natural, you know, normal police procedure to extract information from someone that you might not be in your best interest at that moment, having not fully gelled in your mind what transpired, you might not want to be on the, rec- on the record at that moment. Uh, I discussed that extensively, and I've got some, uh, 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 some videos to view after the class to make sure people understand that there, that is essentially two, there, two, there are two approaches, and you need to select the right one for your circumstance. Yeah, and people don't like silence, especially that awkward oh. silence. Yeah. And that is absolutely the most powerful interview tool that a cop would have. And for some people are watching, we'll hear this on the audio and they won't see the YouTube version of it. And I can't get my whole hands in it, but I just was standing there sometimes just go and do this, you know, a little head motion and, and, and just stand there quietly. And people would just start talking to fill in they get because they did not want to just stand there and just stare back at me in cold silence. Oh, and, man. and they were, 
and they John just realized him that's happened to him, and they, no, they uh, they've keep was, that up. Excuse me, one second. You yeah. know, they would keep that up, and so you have to be aware of that. And there's a phenomenon called logaria, is where you start talking, good. you just don't have the physical ability to stop. And so that's where, you know, talking about having parking spaces in your brain. It's not that you're learning how to, you know, get out of jail free card for, for a violent act, but you need to be aware of these, these things that you have a plan of action for when you are actually faced with. And of course, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And another point that I want to make here is that our world has changed dramatically. I interviewed Masada Yib last night and he and I talked about this, um, is that, uh, the investigating officer, 23 years ago when I first started on the job, the investigating officer had a lot of pull with how that outcome of that whole incident was. Because if I wrote it up as this is a justified incident or whatever, typically where it ended. In the world of social media, that is no longer the case. And I've seen instances in which officers either did not charge or charge with misdemeanors where the prosecutor later gets involved because it has become a social media thing and kicks it up to a major felony or that that starts taking something and brings it into into court. And so you're walking in a minefield when you start going. A prime example, if I can jump in here, Lee, of a malicious prosecution was the Rittenhouse trial. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I took Moss's lethal force instructor class. We had a moot court. And before the moot court, Moss had a presentation on, these are things unethical prosecutors will do to obtain a conviction. And I'm watching the Rittenhouse trial, and I thought, oh my God, they've got Moss's presentation, but they're using it as a checklist. They they impugn the defendant for invoking his Fifth Amendment rights. They withheld evidence. They modified evidence. They misrepresented the law to the jury. It was like, bam, 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 right down down the list. And when you think about it, they did that with the whole world watching. So uh, I I am very uh, re- reluctant uh, to, I, I, to to constantly consistently give the whole story and cooperate with the police thing because they may, their their hands may be tied as well and you will be subjected to a malicious prosecution. Uh, John, um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say I I've lost count of the number of episodes of like first 48 or, or, or some other show that follows investigators around where at some point they're like, well, you know, we don't really have any evidence, but I got a feeling about this guy. And so they get them and they put them in the interview room and they start talking. And this person completely talks themselves into jail. Like there was nothing. They didn't have anything for a warrant. They didn't have anything at all. And like, The interview room exists for you to incriminate yourself. End of discussion. If you are being spoken to in that room without a lawyer, you are there to say something that is at least incriminating enough to get someone else ahead in whatever process they're trying to accomplish. Like, it's unbelievable. People confessing to things that weren't going to be found like oh yeah and i threw the knife in the bushes on the side of the highway they're never going to find it it's not like it's in your sock drawer dude you just told them 
everything. Yeah, we're, we're going to end up running a little long tonight, and I'm going to I'm going to tell a, a war story right here that just that just plays right into that. I was a brand new detective, and I had caught a burglary case. Well, two days later, but I was not on call. Two days later, the on-call detective got called in for a burglary case in the middle of the night in which two suspects had been apprehended. And uh, he called me and said, hey, this isn't related to your case, but I got two suspects here. Uh, could you come in and help me process this crime scene and interview these guys? You're trying to get me some practical experience. So sure, because I was all excited to be the detective. I'd jump in the truck and drive back into the to the office. And in my burglary case, it was a construction trailer for it for a construction site had gotten burglarized. Computers had been stolen, and the perpetrator had left behind a note that said, "I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm human. I quit." And so I, I'm talking to the foreman. Okay, I need a list of everybody who's hasn't shown up to work today and everything. That's where my mind was going. We go in to talk to the two suspects. And just by chance, I walk into the room that has the articulate guy. And I sit down and talk to him. And these were two Katrina refugees that had come to our town in the wake of Katrina. And I'm trying to establish rapport with this individual everything so i understand that you're uh you're here from after katrina from man that must have been a horrible plight could you tell me about what you went through and how you got here because i wanted to get him to start talking and he very calmly looked at me and said officer i know that you're just trying to establish a rapport with me just go ahead and ask me what you want to ask me and i said excuse me for one second and I got up I walked out of the interview room I was in walked over to the other interview room knocked on the door where my sergeant was and said hey this is my guy that did my burglary the other night he says no it's not and I said yeah it is this is the guy that did my burglary that he wrote that note he said it can't be he said oh yeah it is we're going to his house right now we get two patrol guys to come take them on the jail we go over to the apartment where they are being allowed to stay and knock on the door this dude's girlfriend opened the door and there are my stolen computers right there (laughs) score (laughs) i thought it's just because that guy started talking anything you say yeah will be used against you Yeah. yeah even like that's one of those like uh have your cake and eat it too things that you picked mm-hmm. up where you're like this, this, this guy's the guy it's and this guy in there in the words this guy was so smooth that he had actually flagged down an officer and asked for directions hmm. as they were doing the and he had done that the night of the other burglary too we tracked that back and put it back together and he was just that cool of an operator and then the other guy somehow got out of jail and did a murder for her but uh, oh yeah yeah nice people nice people when uh, uh any te- uh, sarah and john anything else you want to say on the after the action thing i'm good tessa you got anything i'm good all right all right well tessa while we're here any final thoughts you have on the class in general and what was your biggest takeaway oh shoot my biggest takeaway um, 
I, instead, just because we haven't like talked about it directly, I would say my favorite like exercise that we did in the class mm-hmm. um, was when John got out the red and green lasers um, and we practiced um, drawing from concealment and responding to a that that stimulus with the lasers. And my favorite part about that was we would come out of the holster sometimes and he would change the color to, you know, this is no longer a deadly threat. And you'd be, your, your trigger would be prepped. And we got to really test ourselves on like, are we actually assessing what's in front of us? Are we actually responding to um, the things happening, you know, on the other side of the gun? So that was my favorite exercise in the class and just kind of overall um, anyone in every, in any stage of where they're at with shooting, with self-defense, anything, um, can take this class and should take this class. Uh, Well, we have to point out here that John Hearn spent hundreds of dollars constructing elaborate lighting devices in order to be able to give people visual signals in a shooting class. And Murphy did it with laser pointer. So we have to recognize that genius. Uh, Sarah and John. I mean, I, I agree. I think this is one of the absolute most essential self-defense classes you can take. Whatever else you've been exposed to, even if you've been, you know, taking ECQC and you're a USPSA A-class shooter, this class will put you through scenarios and experiences that will allow you to bring your whatever current skill set you have you can bring it to this class to the absolute max and learn something about where you're currently oriented it's the best part about the class is that it is an accurate assessment and it illustrates paths forward it's like it's a great gateway to the world that we're really immersed in and it's also a very good refresher and assessment every time you come back around to it yeah i i don't have very much to add to what john said but i will say i've taken a lot of shooting classes and uh very much enjoyed almost all of them Um, But this is one of the classes that I actually use every day. Yeah, I'm going to throw in a couple of things here. Um, We talked about technical shooting earlier, and we've been making a big point about how this was not necessarily a technical shooting class. Um, One of the learning methods that I've been studying of late is called interleaving. And in the shooting world, we tend to teach in the old chunking style, A, then B, then C. Well, there's science out there that if we can activate multiple parts of the brain in the same learning process, that a person will learn better than if we we're just activating single parts of the brain. And so combining your technical skill along with having to make the thought processes and the decisions is going to actually improve your technical shooting skill. Definitely. 
sir. Can I, can I, sure. absolutely, absolutely. So that is a legit thing and I have experienced it, not in the shooting context, but I, uh, I used to play violin as a kid and as an adult, I was like, I need a, I need a hobby for, you know, that involves focus and, you know, something good for my mental health. So I took it up again a couple of years ago and I had a teacher who was good, but was very much A, then B, then C. And I ended up kind of getting burnt out on it. I wasn't enjoying it. I couldn't master one thing well enough to move on to the next thing. And it was just frustrating. And so I kind of took a little break and just played on my own for a while. And then I came back to it. And the next teacher I found uh, was nothing like that. And what he did, he's like, here, learn this song. And I would be like, well, wait, but what technique do I need? Like, what do I need to, what technique do I need to practice? And he's like, just learn this song. Okay. So I learned the song and then I finished the song. I'm like, okay, what do I do? How do I make it sound better? He's like, don't worry about it. Learn this song. And then we learn the next one. And all of a sudden after like five or six songs, I realized that he had been teaching me things that the song itself worked the scale that I needed. He never had to go and say, well, no, your bow hand is three millimeters uh, off center. And that's why it sounds bad. He never said that. He just gave me the exercises that forced me to work on those skills without me even thinking about it. And the coolest part about it was it was fun and enjoyable and it didn't feel like work. And I feel like that is a lot of what John does with this class. It's like he, he throws enough appropriately scaled challenges at you that you have to learn and use these skills, but you never feel like you're being drilled on any of it. But all of a sudden you look back and you're like, wow, I can't believe I just pulled that off. Hmm. Yep. And the other thing is that John Hearn sent me yesterday two very lengthy articles about cognitive training along with firearms training. And basically the whole gist of the whole thing is that we spend all this time teaching the technical part of the shooting, and then we expect people to be able to make decisions when we haven't trained them to make decisions. And I think one of the things John's classes is doing with his interleaving approach to this is he's combining all of the stuff that you have to do with the shooting portion as well when it's appropriate because the shooting portion is also you are accountable for those shots in the class and so it's making you do these technical skills when you're engaging the other parts of the brain and the whole process and so it's going to make you know the overall performance better and you know one of the the things in in the studies was yeah it helps teach people not to shoot the wrong people for sure. One of the things about John's class is that you're asked to make decisions almost mm-hmm. so constantly in each of the contexts that you don't really, there's no like, here's the decision-making part of the class as much as it's an integral part of every segment of the class. Mm-hmm. So the decision-making becomes habitual and expected and like whatever you're doing at some point in your the class, it's like, okay, is it time to do the decision part? You know, it's it like you work into each block and then, then once we're sort of like established and grounded in, in the context of the segment of the class, then there's 
all of a sudden a little more decision making to be doing and you kind of like feel the decision making kick in throughout the class and it feels very integrated all right murphy anything else you'd like to say about your class and what's upcoming with it well i I would like to say i appreciate very much the kind the kind words and thoughts Uh, i've got some running notes of i'm going to implement much of what john said tonight and and particularly the uh the force teaming bit i'm going to revamp a little bit on that uh for me uh, i have a week off and then i'm in Utah, and then south of uh, Portland, and then L.A., uh, south of San Diego, near San Diego, and then I'm back across the country in three venues in Texas. Uh, the website is fpftraining.com, uh, FPF Training on the YouTube channel. All my content is available for everyone to see. Uh, I will say that I've appreciated every student I've had, to make sure they know, for, for allowing me to pursue my passion. And uh, I'm having the time of my life. I wish I, I could have done this a decade ago, but well, timing is everything. And uh, as as it is, it's working out really well for me. And I hope to see y'all in the range. All right. Well, I would like to thank uh, all of our people who joined us on the show tonight. Uh, this was, uh, I enjoyed the discussion. I hope the audience is going to join it. I would like to remind the audience that we do have the That Weems Guy Facebook group in which we discuss uh, the episodes as well as uh, all the guests that come on are invited to post class announcements and everything. And I don't know, maybe holster products and, and their armor style videos. Um, and with that audience, we know that your most important asset is your time. And thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>